0: Now, let's turn again in our Bibles to the Old Testament book of Proverbs and Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. And if you're using the church Bible uh, that you may have picked up at the welcome desk, it's on page 635. Page 635. And let's uh, read uh, here the first uh, seven verses again. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles." And then what is really our text for tonight's study? Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I was thinking about this evening. I realized this is the third message on these seven verses, and if you throw in last Sunday morning, uh, Jesus growing uh, Himself in wisdom, uh, then uh, we are having four sermons on relatively few verses at the beginning uh, of the book of Proverbs. And I had one of those unexpected flashbacks uh, to one of my Latin professors at university uh, who was uh, giving a series of lectures, this is of real interest to you, I know, (laughs) on the Roman playwright Plotus. And he gave lecture after lecture on the introduction, and perhaps this will help those of you who remember the days of black and white television sets. His name was Corbett. Remember Sooty and Sweep? And he looked exactly like the man, Corbett, who was the puppeteer. Sooty and Sweep. I'm pretty sure, but in those days you didn't dare ask one of your professors, are you related to that strange man on television? But he must have been, and he had the same sense of humor. And he came in one day when we were all bored with these introductions and said, I know you're all sitting there thinking, when is he going to get his translation from the university bookshop so we can start translating this play of Plotus? And I thought with some sense of trepidation, uh, maybe some of the members of our beloved St. Peter's are thinking, when will we get past the first seven verses of the book of Proverbs? And the answer is not tonight. <laughs> we've been considering wisdom, and we've come to understand that wisdom is knowledge, but it's knowledge of a certain kind. It's uh, know-how-to knowledge. It isn't just an intellectual matter. Uh, There are people with great intellects who do not have much wisdom, and uh, there's an illustration of that in the second half of the text. There are fools who despise wisdom and instruction. A man may be tremendously intelligent, but he despises the idea that anyone would have the audacity to teach him anything about anything. And he is, in the eyes of the Lord, uh, Solomon says here, a fool. And we've also seen that wisdom is multidimensional. It's made up of various facets of what we know, what we recognize, what we discern, our sensitivity to situations, our ability to take God's Word that's given to us in Scripture and to apply it to situations that aren't described in Scripture. And then if we ask the question, how do we get this wisdom, uh, then the verbs that are used in the first six verses particularly Help us to see how we gain this wisdom. This is a matter of understanding the truth of God's Word. This is a matter of receiving that into our hearts. This is a matter of hearing in the sense, the biblical sense, of obeying it, putting it into practice, and in the process, learning. So, in a way, this is an expression of the greatest commandment, that we learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And as we begin to do that, we begin to be able to answer the question, how do I love my neighbor as myself? How do I function as one of God's children in a world that is full of those who may be against the gospel, misunderstanding the gospel, and opposing the gospel. And one of the things I think we've already seen about the book of Proverbs is it helps us when we are young. I've told you, uh, those of you who have known me for years know my mother made a great impression on me. My father had his own sayings, but actually they were less complimentary, so they don't appear in public so often. But I I remember very regularly my mother saying to me, Sinclair, there is no substitute for experience. And this is one of the wonderful things about the book of Proverbs. It gives you experience when you haven't had it. It gives you experience when you haven't had it so that when you encounter situations that are puzzling, there is a sense in which you have that experience because you've learned it, you've seen it in the book of Proverbs, which is why, as I've said, many of the Proverbs are like cartoon strips. They're like peanuts or whatever it is that you happen to follow that presents situations in vivid ways that capture your imagination, touch your affections, and teach you how to respond to many situations in life. Now, not all Scripture does that in the same way. And we have these different kinds of literature, and we, we absorb them and learn from them in different ways. But one of the beauties of the book of Proverbs, partly because it's given for the young and not just for the old, part of the beauty of this book Is these marvelous cartoons that capture your imagination, that touch your affections in such a way that when you encounter similar situations, analogous situations, uh, the picture comes back to you. Uh, The words come to you. Uh, Proverbs is not full of logical arguments uh, helping you to reason things out in an extended way but pictures that touch the heart and therefore, as it were, loosen the will so that we may be obedient to the Lord. And the result of that is, as we imbibe God's Word in the book of Proverbs as well as other parts of Scripture, that we grow like Jesus who was such an embodiment of the promises of Psalm 119. That it's possible for a young person not only to be wiser than his or her enemies but even to be wiser than his or her teachers. Now, 25 years ago that wouldn't have meant so much, 50 years ago it wouldn't have meant so much, 100 years ago it would have meant even less, but that our children should be wiser than their teachers is actually a critical issue in today's world. Uh, Because whereas uh, a teacher might be there to teach Shakespeare and no more than the child, there are, as we know, and will be teachers who are there whose teaching will seek to destroy the gospel, the Word of God, and those who are the children of God's covenant. And it is a great thing to know that it's possible for our children to be wiser than their enemies, and wiser even than those who instruct us. But where do we begin? Well, that's where verse 7 comes in. In your Bible, probably, there's a heading. These are the proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. There's this prologue, this introduction, and then, as it were, there's the big statement. So, how do we get wisdom? Well, fools despise wisdom and instruction, but we are told The beginning of knowledge, which is echoed later on by the use of the word wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And you'll notice that right away, this is a huge thing that goes right back to Genesis chapter 3, right from the beginning, the Proverbs make clear to us that there are two wisdoms. There is the wisdom of the world, which is at the end of the day folly, and there is the wisdom of God. And just as Genesis 3.15 promises a struggle between the covenant seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, then that's where Proverbs 1 verse 7 fits into the Bible. It's a book about living out the covenant life, which means… That every single one of us is living in a world where the wisdom of God is despised, where the wisdom of man is exalted, and where it's so important for us to have the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord. That begins with what worldly men and women and young people, perhaps of all things, most despise because they most fear. And Christians can easily be infected by this. What do I mean? The most feared thing in all the world, in our society, what is it? It is the fear of the Lord. And what we're being taught here is that the fear of the Lord, let me put it this way the fear of the Lord is not just, uh, I think the language suggests, it's not just one in a series of steps that kind of all belong, that are all of equal importance. When Proverbs 1-7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What it's saying is it's the foundation of knowledge, it's the the first point of knowledge. Uh, we, we, We seek to teach our children, perhaps not in so many words, we always need to go back to first principles. And that's kind of obvious, because if you get the first principle wrong, at the end of the day everything will be wrong, and the first principle here is the fear of the Lord. It's the first principle of all knowledge, the fear of the Lord. Lack this and we lack everything. On Sunday night when we were in Glasgow, I I, uh, was driving into the evening service. I I went onto the motorway that brought me to the church. I'm driving at 60 miles an hour down the motorway, and I see flashing in the other direction a, a BMW with a registration that I recognize because it belongs to the only elder in the church who has got a personalized number plate. And I immediately think to myself, so where's he off to? And then I realize he's off to church. I'm heading in the opposite direction. And so I go faster. But the faster I go, the further away I get. And that's this principle. The more you grow as a person, the more you know as a person, the more you do as a person, the further away you get from the key to the whole of life and to the entire cosmos if you do not understand that the foundation of everything in your life and everything we do in the world needs to be that knowledge of God that begins with the fear of God. I'm not sure that this will be the last sermon on these seven verses, but let, let me just pause on that because it's so important for us when we, are, when we are addressing the non-Christian world. The non-Christian world wants to say to us, well, we can talk about this on a, on a new, without any prejudice whatsoever. I'm a completely unprejudiced person, so let us talk about this on a neutral basis. Let us talk about this without reference to God, and you must never allow yourself to be hauled over to that ground, because the moment you are hauled over to that ground, everything goes. I've used this illustration before. Let's talk about man. Let's, let's talk about gender. Let's talk about all these things, but we must have no reference to God. What's happened if you say, well, let's do that? What's happened is that you have lost the very fundamental element of our existence as human beings. What is it? Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We're made as the image of God. So long as I leave God out of the conversation as the first principle of all things then I can never arrive at a proper understanding of what it means to be a human being. That doesn't mean that because you hold these things to be true and dear, you know everything about anatomy, physiology, psychology, and the cosmos. No, not at all. But it means if you get it wrong at the beginning, you'll never get it right at the end. And the more able you are, the further you will go from the truth. I wonder if any of you went to see the Open Championship, or you've got satellite TV and you caught a bit of it, or somehow you, you saw those men who apparently with little effort can hit a golf ball 300 yards. And th- then they end up in the winds, and you think, these idiots, what are they doing in the winds? I wouldn't have ended up there. No, the reason you wouldn't have ended up there is because you don't have the ability to hit the ball more than 150 yards. You don't get as far as the winds. It's because of their ability that they got into that situation. A very small error at the point of impact. And this would be true of any sport, wouldn't it? A very small error at the point of impact creates a greater error the greater the force, and that's true of the human intellect as well. Which is why, dear friends, it shouldn't at all surprise us that the world is full of brainy people who deny the existence of God. It's not because they're brainy, it's because they don't have the first principle. And you notice that that's one of the things. There are two things they're seeking for. They're either seeking for the ability to create eternal life, or they're seeking for the ability to find something other than God who is the first principle of all things. And you see so many different ways there is this passion to find a unifying fundamental principle to everything that is, as long as it's not God. And here Solomon in days of his wisdom, in earlier days when he had sought wisdom, you remember, it was the first thing that he wanted from the Lord, understood this and that real knowledge involves the fear of the Lord. And you can never really understand the world, and you certainly can't understand yourself until you begin there. And, uh, of course, the book of Proverbs was uh, written for a, a, a Semitic environment, but um, you remember what was over the, the temple of uh, Ap- 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 Apollos, wasn't it? In, uh, in, the, the, in ancient Greek, they say it's not there any longer. The foundation of all right thinking know thyself. Know thyself. That's where Socrates was supposed to have got the, his famous statement that the unexamined life is not worth living because know yourself is the foundation of everything. That sounds extraordinarily modern, doesn't it? What's the the passion of our time? It's to to discover yourself. It's the project of the self. To discover who you really are, and then with your self-created self, to tell us who you are. And so long as that is our starting place, it shouldn't surprise us that we end up in the confusion, moral, ethical, social, political, legal, international mess in which we find ourselves. Because when you reject the knowledge of God and the fear of the Lord as the foundation for all things. You are on the track that leads ultimately to confusion and to various forms of self-destruction. And thankfully, we may be seeing some of those forms of destruction, those implosions already. And so this is this is a, you know this is such a hugely significant statement. And the best Christian thinkers who are always the ones David Robertson and I agree with of course. The best Christian thinkers have always understood this. Augustine, uh, you you want to know what I want to know? I want to know God and I want to know my own soul. And you say, is there nothing else? And I say, there's nothing else I want to know. When I know those things, I know everything I need. And little John Calvin, aged 26, when he's writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion in its first edition and then publishing it when he was 27, and 1536, and working on it for the next 23, 24 years of his life until the final Latin edition, 1559, final French edition in 1560. He begins what began as a six-chapter paperback, essentially and ends up with a four-volume exposition of the whole of Christian theology, he begins it with the same sentence, more or less identical words, every single time. First principle, all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in this, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And you see, as you read through the book of Proverbs, you, you come to see actually that when you've got that first principle in place, kind of everything else begins to flow from it. The more I know who God is and who, 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 what He has done, what He is like, then the more I'm going to negotiate, be able to negotiate the world as His image in the in a context in which that image has been demeaned and fractured. And the more I learn what it is to fear the Lord, the more I learn to fear Him, the more I will inevitably do that in a manner, you see, a manner that marks me off from the rest of the ungodly world. Because I'm a man or a woman who has different drivers in his or her life, which create a different atmosphere in my life. Which is why very interestingly, isn't it, in Psalm 19, the psalmist says, the fear of the Lord is pure. Isn't that interesting? The fear of the Lord is pure, clean integrity order and that's that's what we are called to be in the world isn't it it's not it's not rocket science it's it's a matter of the knowledge of the lord and the fear of the lord that that produces in us such a such a lifestyle that yes we are sinners we are really sinners and we struggle but by by God's grace, He's done the big thing in our lives, and we've come to know Him and trust Him and love Him and fear Him. So what difference does that make? What difference does that really make in day-to-day living? And uh, the bane of david 's life, we 'll just have to come back to this i 'm sure uh next sunday, so uh although i 'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, I think I may have spoken with prophetic insight uh, at the beginning. Uh, let me just read you a few verses from from the book of proverbs and, and i 'll do it slowly so that so that we can we can take it in. Be not wise in your own eyes. Now that's novel. Because we live in a world that is wise in its own eyes, that thinks how I see it is how it is. Be not wise in your own eyes. I should be, you should be, you should be writing down the verse number and then there'll be a prize at the end for the person who got most of the verse numbers right. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I said, Again, it's not rocket science. What happens when you fear the Lord, which will come to, God willing, next Lord's Day evening, the effect is that you turn away from evil. The implication is that if if the fear of the Lord is not a reality in your life then you're not likely to turn away from evil. You all knew that was Proverbs 3 verse 7. Here's Proverbs 10 verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Now we all know the book of Proverbs is not like that chocolate machine that's still down there in the Dundee station. They've changed everything at the front, but the chocolate machine is still there. The book of Proverbs is, you don't, you don't put money in and, and it pops out like your fortune cookie in the Chinese restaurant, that's not how it works. It understands we live in a fallen world where things go terribly wrong sometimes, and mysterious and awful things happen also to Christians. So, this is not saying Christians live longer than non-Christians. Although there's always some report coming out that will tell you you'll either be happier or you'll live longer if you're a Christian, and then some bazooka fellow, you know, writes an entire book about it. What it's saying is that uh, that actually will be true of you. The fear of the Lord will extend your life in one way or another as life. That's quality of life apart from anything else, no matter what. So that no matter what, no one would ever be able to say to you, look, you've wasted your life and your time fearing the Lord, because look how short it's been. Now what would a Christian say to that? They would say, yes, it's been short but its quality has been different. And this is only the beginning. Well, here's another one. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Now, why is that helpful to us? Because if you are despised for being a Christian believer, you know the reason is never simply personal. Now, some Christians, us included, do the wackiest of things. We can be so stupid. We can be so insensitive. So, this is not a declaration that everyone who believes has supreme wisdom, but it is saying that the person who has learned the wisdom of the fear of the Lord knows that when he or she experiences opposition, it's not just about them. I don't know who told me this. I don't know whether I found it myself when I was reading my Bible as a teenager, but when I was a teenager it dawned on me that all the stuff I might get from people I knew was never primarily about me unless I actually deserved it. And when you understand that and you you live in that atmosphere of the fear of the Lord and in His presence, then in all of those circumstances, you're able to say, Lord, I know this isn't about me. And so long as that is true, I don't take it to myself because it's about you. And you have taken it. And you will be with me in it. And you will do your own marvelous work through it. Here's another beautiful one. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. That's a, that's a proverb for today, isn't it? In the midst of dysfunctional families, which incidentally are not all poor families. This may be one of the great supposedly social problems of our time on which our governments throughout the world spend probably billions of pounds trying to find ways to resolve the unresolvable when you remove God from the picture, that there are so many children who have no refuge in their parents. No refuge in their parents. Uh, One of our children, I remember coming home when uh, that child, no gender given, hide the identity, just in case it's somebody who's a member here, uh, to tell us that as far as that child knew, that child was the only child in that child's group who went home to that child's natural father and mother. Now, we weren't living in some uh, ultra deprived place. But that was the truth, which inevitably meant what? That those dear children had no refuge in their parents. And you see, What politician is going to be elected today on the basis of saying that? That our real problem, our real deep down insurmountable problem, that if it were ever to be even fractionally solved, would either require the most extraordinary outpouring of God's Spirit or a long-term work of God's Word. But that's a problem, isn't it? That's the biblical analysis of the problem. Leave the moorings of the first principle and then things are bound to begin to crack up. Because it's that first principle that holds everything together. And the children have a refuge. Refuge. You know, I keep I keep being so thankful. You know, sometimes I'm I'm I'll see something or I'll 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 be in another church and I, I see the, the 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 absolute decay and I think what a privilege it is to belong to with all warts and all. What a privilege it is to belong to a genuine Christian community where the children have a refuge. And where, yes, there have been failures and sin in the Christian church and in the evangelical church, but those of you who are parents, you believe your children are safe here, talking to the grown men, and so on, why is this? Because in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and His children will have a refuge. Here's another one. I, I, this is only page two. <laughs> you, know, go, you know, get yourself a big concordance and just work through this. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. And just in parenthesis, I don't think it's possible to have great treasure and not to have trouble with it. At the very least, you'll end up having trouble with the insurance companies. I had a student who organized the security guard for a man who owned the patent for a a medicine, a little pill that was in in every pharmacy, in every drugstore, and probably in every medicine cabinet. And uh, this fellow who was a doctoral student, had the marvelous job. The only thing he did was to organize the rota for the security guards because this man had things in his house no insurance company was prepared to insure unless there was 24-hour-a-day physical human security. And this very generous man allowed him to have guests to show him around what was kind of this amazing, you, would be, you just would not believe what this man owned, the artifacts he owned. And we're, we're sitting at dinner, and the security guard comes marching through. It was like something out of a comedy, in, in, in British comedy. You know, there we are, we're having our mince and tatties. Um, but all the trouble. And that's how it is. But you see, if you have the fear of the Lord, this is really so beautiful. If you have the fear of the Lord, then it's, you're happy with a little. There's no way to be content without the fear of the Lord. I better not start or go on. Um, You see, this is not ten things you need to do. This This is just one thing you need to do. But what is this fear of the Lord? Oh, you need to come back next week to find out. But let me put it this way. It's having a sense in your heart of who He really is. And discovering that the result of that in your heart is that there is a, there is a mingling of affections in your soul that change your life. Because on the one hand, you tremble before His greatness. On the other hand, you're overwhelmed by His covenant love. And just in case you ever read the pages at the beginning of your Bible, whether you use the NIV or the ESV or any modern translation, it probably tells you and you, you just, you know, you want to go on to Genesis 1 1. It tells you that whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters, that's a translation of the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the Savior's name. And that's what this is saying. And it's very interesting, if you, if you, go, back, if you go back with this that thought in mind and start reading your Bible, you'll notice that, uh, I think I'm right in saying this, that Lord, all capitals will not appear in your translation of the first chapter of Genesis, but then it kind of explodes in Genesis chapter 2. What's that saying? That's Moses saying, incidentally, the one who made the heavens and the earth the one who hung the stars in their place. This great and awesome and mighty and infinite and majestic God is the covenant God who came down and heard our cries in Egypt and prepared Moses to be our deliverer and brought us out by His outstretched mighty hand and embraced us and carried us through the desert like a father carrying... His children in His arms. And we want to say, Lord, Lord, give me a break. Just be one or the other. But you see, it's when we understand that He's not one or the other. He's both. That we understand that the fear of the Lord is this sense of the sheer awesomeness of who He is and the overwhelming reality that this is the one who has heard our cries and come down to be our Savior. Remember the wind in the willows where a rat and mole find themselves getting onto the river because the otters have lost Little Portley, who's always getting lost, and they, they decide late at night that they'll, they'll, they'll go down the river and see if they can find him. And they encounter the, the, the pagan god Pan. Um, I sometimes wonder if this is actually where C.S. Lewis got his little bit about Aslan. Is he safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Because this is very similar. Rat Mole found breath to whisper shaking as they encounter Pan. Are you afraid? Afraid murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh never, never And yet and yet O oh Mole I am afraid," then the two animals, crouching in the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. And you see, if that's true in, a, in the never-never land of rat and mole sailing down the river and meeting this mythical god, Pan. Uh, you, could, you can almost sense uh, with, with the author in this context, it's a, like, a, it's like a, oh, if that were only true. And the great thing God's covenant people have come to know is that uh, there is no pan. But there is the living and true God who has made Himself known to us in Jesus Christ. And when we encounter Him, We may well say to one another, are you afraid? And we will say, no, of him I could not possibly be afraid yet. I am. And it leads me to bow before him and worship him. And you see, when we have done that, uh, life has changed for us. And we are, although sometimes it can be a little misapplied, we are among the company of those who are recognized because, well, because we've been with Jesus, and we adore Him, but we adore Him with trembling love and with loving fear and we discover the fear of the Lord, of this Lord, is clean and makes us clean. And that enables us to negotiate life from a very secure starting place. So, let's worship Him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the riches of Your Word, for The way in which it is like a mighty river flowing from Genesis to Revelation into which all kinds of rivers of your Revelation themselves flow for the joy of bathing in it. Lord, when we think of men and women in in other parts of the world who want to bathe in in a river as a religious rite and we we think that we can bathe in this river every, every place we are, in our homes, in our church, on the bus, in our lunchtime, as we walk along the road, as we engage in our business, that we can be reflecting on how Your Word applies to these particular situations. Lord, we, we thank You again, too, for the promise that You've given us uh, that, if any of us lack wisdom, then you, you will give it to us, and you won 't chide us in the process, because you 're one who gives every good and perfect gift, and we pray specifically for this for for ourselves that you will you will make us wise, and that our lives, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us, may have that marvelous aroma of the presence of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we know this will mean different, different things for, for one and another, different, different expressions of it, because we live in different contexts. But we pray that You would, you would make it true that, that people people would begin to notice that there's just something about him, her, that family, those friends. And they want to say, uh, in heaven's name, where does that come from? And we'll be able to say, how did you know? So give this to us, Lord, as you've promised. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And to finish by singing the song, Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, Nor be all else to me, save that Thou.